Welcome to Dealmaker Diaries, where you hear directly from the dealmakers who you invest with. M&A, real estate syndication, and more. Strap in for unparalleled advice, wisdom, and insight from some of the world's best business minds with Don Thomas and G1C Group. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Dealmaker Diaries. Today we're going to have Mr. Scott Crone with us today. Scott is a Chicago native whose career in architecture began in 1991 by pursuing his Master's of Agriculture from the Illinois Institute of Technology. While obtaining his degree, he also worked as a project manager for Optima. During his time at Optima, Crohn's responsibilities included notable projects such as the 400-unit Commondale in Deerfield, Illinois, the 40-unit Hedge Row in Winnetka, Illinois, and the 51-unit Optima Center in Willamette, in Willamette, Illinois. In 2012, Crone founded Coda Management Group, a firm who specializes in managing real estate assets. Since its inception, Coda manages a wide range of real estate, including single and multifamily homes, retail, commercial, warehouse, and self-storage, along with multi-use flex athletic spaces. Currently, the platform of investments is in excess of $55 million. Crone has authored High Performance Homes, Navigating the Green Road to Your Dream Home, a book for homeowners seeking to incorporate green technology in their home. Most recently, Scott also founded a revolutionary storage business, the One Stop Self Storage. It's committed to make its own members time of transition rewarding and strives to remove challenges and hurdles commonly found in the industry. The one-stop brand is built upon the premise of providing the best in storage solutions contained in sustainable, renewable construction and is located in Wisconsin, Ohio, Kentucky, and Milwaukee. Crone resides in Willamette, Illinois with his wife and three children. So let's give him a warm welcome to the show. Let's go. So, hey, Scott, welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm doing very well, Donald. Thanks for having me. Uh, thank you. I really appreciate you joining us today. So, it's Scott, before, before we um, get started, why don't you tell the um, audience a little bit about yourself and your background and how you got to where you are currently in this journey? Well, my journey in real estate began getting my master's degree in architecture after I graduated from college. And I was fortunate enough to be connected with a professor who owned a real estate development company, but also did their own design as well as their construction. And um, it was all multifamily. So my background really was learning the multifamily industry through him and I was his TA. And so I also worked for him in his office. So, I mean, I was literally for the three and a half years I was in graduate school starting at seven in the morning, going to his office until 12, uh, leaving, going to class from two to six or one to six, depending on the day, and then going home and doing homework from seven until midnight. And so from literally seven in the morning until midnight, I was consumed with uh, learning the learning the real estate world and multifamily world. And I worked for him for six years. And then I, in 1998, I started our own firm 
um, where we were doing development, design, and build predominantly in, in the residential side, either in single family, mixed use, or multifamily. And obviously, we all experienced a crash in 2008 and 9, and that's when we pivoted more into the commercial realm of owning um, multifamily. But also in 2013, we, we acquired our first building to convert it into self-storage. Since that period of time, I've sold off all my multifamily and have been um, focusing on self-storage on our investment vehicle. And we recently just started our own company called One Stop Self-Storage. So we are now managing our, our own facilities. Okay, and um, that first uh, facility that you converted into self-storage, um, how big of a process was that and how, how deep was the learning curve and making that happen and getting that done? Well, there's two, I would say there's two learning curves. One um, on the construction side and the entitlements, it was a 90,000 square foot building that we had to rezone it. Um, and then we converted it into self-storage. That was very comfortable for me. I, I'd done that before. I'd done a, quite a few um, PUD or entitlement processes with multifamily. So designing something, to me, self-storage is multifamily without toilets and sinks. And so if I can design an apartment building or a condo building, I can certainly design a, a self-storage facility. Um, just a lot more simplistic. Um, learning the business side of the self-storage, that was the bigger learning curve. And uh, I, it took, you know, we, we began with that one and then we did two other ones. And, you know, over a course of, I would say, four years. And then uh, once we had that process down, then we, we started going um, a little bit more aggressive in the marketplace. And now we're, we have 10 facilities. Okay. And, um, and all of those, where are those located? Those facilities are most of those in the Midwest where you are, or are they spread out across the U S they're predominantly in the Midwest. We have Wisconsin, Illinois, a few in Ohio, uh, Kentucky, and then Maine. Okay. All right. Very cool. So, I know you have, um, you talk a lot about the um, the practicality of passive investing. Can you um, expand a little on if you were going to give pointers or guides to passive investing, what, would, what kind of advice would you give for those just getting in the um, industry? I would say the first step is really identifying what are your goals for the investment I would say 50% of our investors are doing it for a tax strategy. The other 50% are doing it for the growth. But even for instance, within self-storage, there's different levels of um, passive investors, depending on what you're trying to accomplish with your investment. Um, for instance, a class C in uh, single in multifamily would not be considered a great neighborhood. But in self-storage, is considered first-generation self-storage, non-climate control, smaller, typically a mom and pop. And we equate that to um, a penny stock. You're just going to get a good, consistent yield out of it, nothing spectacular. Um, a Class B would be more closer to suburban market. It would may resemble a Class C, but it would probably be a little bit larger, maybe climate controlled and have a fence around it and, and paved. Um, all still drive up. And we, we consider that to be more like a blue chip stock. It's just going to produce, it's going to be a steady producer for you. And then um, the class A would be um, in the city, larger, fully climate controlled drive-in type facilities. And we, we consider that to be like a growth stock. 
in terms of appreciation and cash flow, but it's going to be a longer term investment. So each of these things, they have their, their different pluses and minuses and, and not every investment is right for every person, but it's determining which one's the best for you. And when you, when you talk about investors, are you, um, are you syndicating these deals or are people investing after they're already closed? How, how does that work for you guys? We have equity investors. So they, they are owners with us in our investments. And so they get all the rights and privileges of being an owner in our investments. Okay. And, and say I am, say I'm totally new and I heard you talk about um, tax strategies. What, would, what are some of the um, largest tax benefits from investing in self-storage? Well, the, when we do development, we, when we do uh, conversions of uh, existing facilities or expand them, we're always looking to add cost segregation to our portfolio. And so we get an accelerated depreciation. Um, and as much as we explain it, you know, we still had investors calling us up this year. You know, we, we'd opened up the facilities, we completed construction. And because of the cost segregation, we have this huge loss in the beginning, which then carries forward. And if you can't use it for multiple years, up, you know, I think up to 10 years. And so as a result of it, you know, they call us up and say, why do we have these big losses? And we said, it's all because of the depreciation. So instead of taking a linear approach to depreciation, we're front loading it um, because most facilities are held for five to seven years. So why not capture the most depreciation over that period of time? And so that is one of the more significant things that we do. Um, we've also done opportunity zone investments. We created some of the first opportunity funds and our, our project in Toledo was probably the first uh, privately funded PACE project and opportunity zone, if not in Ohio, throughout the country, the combination of those two investment vehicles. And so, you know, we, we created it before the, the IRS had come out with the regulations for it. We called them up and we were in conversation with them just to make sure that we understood what we were doing so that we were doing it appropriately. And um, so we, we spent a good amount of time on the phone directly with the IRS to, to ensure that we were doing it properly. But the idea of the opportunity zone is if, if a property is designated in a zone, you can invest your capital gains. So whether it be from real estate or sale of stocks or you know any ways that you have capital gains and you can invest it and it becomes tax deferred. And if you hold it for 10 years, they wipe out your capital gains completely. So it transitions it from deferment to complete wipeout and anything that grows in that fund during that period of time will also be tax-free. So it's, and it's an incredible, powerful tool. Yeah, I know that was, um, those opportunity zones were created under the last administration. So you do, do you see, um, or do you foresee there being any um, significant changes to that program with the current administration? Or are you pretty confident that'll remain intact? That's a very interesting question because um, obviously Biden has attacked a lot of things that Trump has done, but the opportunity zone was actually created in the Obama administration and Obama chose not to do anything with it. So the guy who actually created the concept was in Obama's cabinet and, you know, he was working on this idea, this concept, and it wasn't getting a whole lot of traction until uh, Trump was elected. And then he made a comment how he didn't want to answer a question during an interview that he wanted to talk about opportunity zones and um, the guy's phone just kept, you know, blowing up after that. And it was shortly thereafter passed and it was the most bipartisan um, 
measure or bill that was passed during, um, you know, the first, I think it was the first 90 days of Trump's administration and it still is the most bipartisan um, legislation that was passed. So during the um, campaign, Biden did have some comments about how he wanted to have the IRS begin assessing the social uh the social benefit of the opportunity zone to the people who were recipients of it. And I'm not sure how the IRS would quantify that. I don't know how the IRS would be able to determine what the social benefit is to a specific person who may or may not be actually employed by that, op- that investment in the opportunity zone. Um, so it, it, there hasn't been much talk since that period of time about it. Um, Biden has, you know, left, has kept it unlike 1031s, which a lot of people, uh, instead of doing 1031s, were doing in opportunity zones. But he's been very, um, he's had a lot more conversation, a lot more discussion around eliminating 1031s or other uh, capital gain um, protection vehicles. But so far, you know, he's, he hasn't touched the, the opportunity zones. Okay. Okay, and getting back to some more specifics about um, self-storage, what, what would you consider, um, what, what do you think are some of the biggest facts that most people don't know about self-storage that are pretty bit of beneficial to investors? It's a very predictable business model. As much as it is a real estate play, it is also a retail play. But the difference is in this retail model, it is very predictable. Um, there's spending patterns and there's also um, demographics that can support the, you know, whether or not to invest in a specific area. So we do a lot of due diligence on the market. Um, that was something a lot more than what we did ever when we were doing multifamily. Um, we have a much better handle of what the surrounding marketplace is in need of and what they're willing to pay and, and those sorts of statistics. So when we go into a development excuse me, when we go into a development, we have a very good understanding of what the market will do. And so we feel the model is a lot more predictable. Okay. And um, I hear a lot. um, Well, I don't know if I hear a lot, but I sometimes hear that the market is pretty competitive and it's hard to find good deals because institutional investors are buying up most of the market in in self-storage. Is there how much truth is there to that? And if not, how competitive is the market or how, how easy or difficult is it to find good deals out there? Well, for sure. The, the, the I mean, Blackstone, um, Berkshire Hathaway, Warren, um, and uh, um, Bill Gates have all recently made significant investments into self-storage. Um, and we're, we're talking like requality type investments. So if you're trying to get into it, um, one way would obviously be more of a class C or B. Um, and I think, you know, as you move up the classes, it becomes more competitive, but that's also why we do the conversions. I mean, that's why we do the development because, you know, we're, we're taking buildings that are not self-storage and converting them into self-storage. And for us, we don't see too many other people doing that. There are a few that are building new and then selling them directly to the REITs upon certificate of occupancy. But our model is to develop them, build them up, and then um, have a portfolio. So our goal is to take that, you know, 10, 20 assets that we have and sell them to a, a mid-level REIT and uh, mm-hmm. get better cap compression. So um, we're definitely seeing more competition in the marketplace. 
But, you know, keep in mind that only 10% of the population currently uses self-storage and it's a, you know, a very underserved segment of the population. Yeah, I wasn't aware of that statistic. And um, I mean, that conversion is interesting. So um, when you're looking at um, properties or assets to convert, um, what, what criteria are you using that would make one asset a, a good conversion potential? Well, there's there's quite a few. I mean, one is the the size and the shape of the building. We're looking for something between 70 and 110,000 square feet. Uh, the more boxy it is, the more rectangular it is, obviously the better. If it's multiple stories, then we're going to want to see it over three stories. Um, doesn't, you know, a two-story building is the least efficient building type out there in my mind, because you still have to put an elevator and you don't, if you put three or four stories, it's the same cost for the elevator. So you might as well get your money's worth. Um, and then we also look at the zoning and the last thing we, not the last, but one of the more significant things is we do that market research. Uh, we do that market study to see what the level of competition is in the marketplace. Um, and that level is um, square feet of, of lockers per capita. And the national average is seven square feet of lockers per capita. But we're seeing like in Florida and the East Coast that it's you know, pushing nine or 11. I mean, some places in Florida, we've seen it as 13. So those are reasons why we're avoiding those marketplaces. But um, those, are, those are the main drivers of factors that we look for when we're evaluating a property. Okay, and those studies that you're doing, are you doing those studies in-house or are those contracted out to third parties who specialize in those? How is that done? Both. So we, we begin our initial, I mean, <clears throat> when someone brings us a property or you know, says, hey, what do you think about it? The first thing I do, you know, just real down and dirty is I'll, I'll put the address in, in Google Maps and then in front of the address, I'll put self-storage near space and then hit enter. And then I'll get a sense of how many facilities are in proximity. So, you know, I was looking at, um, I was speaking in Oakland or I was attending, I should say, I was attending a conference in Oakland, um, a bigger pockets conference. And this woman was saying how she had this property in Austin and she was going to convert it into self-storage or de develop self-storage. And I asked her, I said, well, have you done a, a feasibility study or market research? And she goes, no, they'll tell us me what to do. You know, I figure I'm just going to do it and then they'll tell me what I need to put in there. And I said, well, why don't you give me the address and I'll, I'll do a little research. And she goes, well, there's not too much self-storage around me. There's, you know, I'm, I'm sure it will work. So I, I put it in and there was like 18 facilities within a mile. <laughs> and, you know, we, we did do the research. We did do the radius. You know, we did look more into it for her just before we hired the consultants. And um, the market saturation was nine and, you know, we, we, and there was more coming online that would have brought up to 11. And we're like, whatever you do, do not do self-storage here. You're, you would not get the pricing. Your lease up will be longer. You, you know, it, it will just put more economic pressure on your facility. I don't know if she went ahead and did it or not, but those are some of the things that we do to begin. And then once we get further along the lines and we're digging into our due diligence, and maybe under contract, that's when we will hire a feasibility consultant to, to verify and, and make sure or check that, you know, we haven't missed anything and we get a better sense of what the market, what they feel the market is. And that's a document that we provide our lenders. It's something we provide the appraisers. Um, so it's a very critical document for us to have is that feasibility study. Okay. All right. Very interesting. And um, how long were you doing, um, 
multifamily before you got into self-storage. And um, you're strictly doing self-storage now, if I heard you correctly, right? That is correct. I mean, I, I began back in 1991 doing multifamily. And so um, I sold my last, you know, I, I try to time the market. I'm, I'm certainly not perfect at it, but I sold my last multifamily in 18. And so I, I haven't owned any since then. And is that specifically because you just find self-storage a much more attractive investment? Absolutely. I mean, there I have more product flexibility. So for instance, if we had one product that um, all the 10 by 20s were leased up and we couldn't, the 10 by 10s were struggling. And so we took out the center wall and made those units 10 by 20s and then we leased them all up. So, you know, we, we cut down the number of units, but we increased our occupancy. That's not something I can do within multifamily, um, having that level of flexibility within the marketplace. The second thing is, you know, my cost per door is significantly less. Um, you know, my, my cost, I can get four or 500 units of investment for 10% of the cost of multifamily. And then the next thing is that when I, when I look at the marketplace, my operational expenses are not 55%. They're closer, you know, between 25 and 35%. And we don't have the damage that you would typically find within multifamily or, or the turnover and those sorts of things. So there's, there's a lot of different reasons why we prefer it. I mean, operationally, it's, it's more cost-effective. Our yields are better. Um, you know, we have more flexibility within the marketplace to adapt. And so there's just, um, you know, for us, a lot more advantages to having self-storage versus multifamily. Okay. And um, are you financing a portion of those or is all your, all your funding coming from equity investors? No, we, we put debt on them. You know, each, each property has debt. We want to, you know, balance that level of debt to make sure it's an appropriate level so that we can enhance the investor's rate of return without providing too, too much risk. Okay. And is, and is the financing a bit easier than multifamily as well? Because I know when you get into the larger multifamily, you know, a lot of the agency lenders want you to have experience and certain amount of net worth equal to or greater than the amount of the loan. Is that is that a bit easier with self-storage as well? It, it, it's the same underwriting criteria, but keep in mind though that, you know, I can do eight uh, self-storage facilities for the cost of one big multifamily deal. So, you know, that there's a lot, I can diversify my risk portfolio more so than on one property in multifamily. So the banks underwrite it the same. There are banks that's more specialized in it, but if someone's looking to get into it, um, you know, the SBA is a great vehicle to get into um, self-storage with an SBA loan. Okay. And just um, going back a minute to that woman with the um, Bigger Pockets um, conference you went to. So it sounds like you guys do consulting as well. On... We do. If, if someone brings us a, a site and they think they want to develop it, that is one of the things we do. We just don't do our own. Um, we, we, we're working on a project right now in, in uh, Florida and another one in Ohio where we've been hired to facilitate transactions and one in uh, Virginia. So between Virginia, Ohio, and, and Florida, we're also um, helping others develop these. Okay. Yeah, that's very good to know. And, um, and you talked about the one-stop self-storage. Can you talk a little bit more about that and how that works? And if someone's interested in joining, can you talk a little bit more about that and expand on that? Well, we, 
during the COVID, we kept all of our job sites opened and we, we brought online four facilities, one in Chicago, one in um, Milwaukee, Toledo, and Dayton. And the first three, we, we opened up with a major REIT and we saw over a period of time that our costs were escalating almost 40% monthly and our conversions rates from, you know, you know, we get a reservation and the conversion of that reservation into an actual uh, lease was down around 20%. And our facility in Toledo went, went six months and we only had like eight units rented. And, you know, they just kept blaming it. The, the demographics were wrong. And I'm like, well, the demographics haven't changed since we underwrote this whole deal. So that doesn't make sense to us. And so we made it over a six month period of time. We, we made the decision that it was important to move beyond that REIT because of their performance and how poorly they were doing. And so we, we began creating um, our own brand, um, One Stop Self Storage. And our, our beta test was we opened our one in Dayton under that brand as opposed to the, the REIT. And that was in Dayton. So we had Toledo and Dayton. So very similar markets. Um, both in Ohio, not too far apart from one another. And in our first um, month, we had 12% occupancy in Dayton. And, you know, since um, we brought both of those facilities online, you know, within a short period of time, they're both over 20% occupancy. And that's a growth and a projection that we were not having in our other facilities. And so, we, we converted all of our other facilities over to one-stop self-storage and we've been able to control our expenses better. We've been able to increase our, our conversion rate went from 22% to 77%. And, you know, we're, we're leasing them up at a better velocity than what we were doing under the REIT. And so we just felt that there was a much better um, situation for us. And so, you know, we spent an enormous amount of money in terms of marketing, getting all the internet drivers, all the um, certificates, everything along those lines to make sure that we were being directed to our brand and generating our brand identity and um, creating the website so that people could go on and log on and, and you know, do uh, touchless uh, reservations and those sorts of things. Okay. And, and most of your investors that come in and invest are those are those people that you you developed through your network over the years, or how do you how, how do you have you built your investor network? Uh, well, my my first three investors were my my father, my uncle, and my grandfather. And after you know we closed the first house, I said, "Do it again and don't tell anyone." And I'm like, "Hmm, that makes me think that I did it really well, and I better tell everybody because I could be limited by what these three guys want me to do." <laughs> And so, you know, it's, it's word of mouth. It's gotten out there. It's, it's, you know, talking, uh, you know, I've been fortunate enough to present at different uh, events to make people aware of the portfolio of its self-storage as an investment vehicle. Um, you know, a lot of times, you know, it's, I think that mobile homes and uh, mobile home parks and self-storage have always been considered the outlier investments in the real estate world. And, um, you know, sort of the Cinderella, if you will. And now self-storage is certainly coming more to the forefront of the investment conversation because a lot of people view it as recessionary resistant. Um, that was a term that I came up with. I, a lot of people thought it was recessionary proof. Um, 
but when we studied the marketplace, we saw how well self-storage performed during the last four uh, major recessions. And it's, it hasn't dropped below 80, 88% occupancy during that period of time. And then, you know, continues to rise. And so that's where I came up with the term recessionary resistant um, because of how well it does in both the bull market and a bear market. And, um, you know, I, I think that's, that is becoming more of a focal point for people and they're seeing that. So as we've, you know, been talking about that message and making people aware of what's going on, um, it has, you know, and then the tax strategies that we put in place has been a real driver factor for people wanting to, to partner with us. Okay. And do you see around the country, do you see certain markets being better opportunities for investment in self-storage, particularly in the development side of it, of conversions than other parts of the um, country? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, we're, we're not actively looking in the East Coast, um, Florida or California or Texas, because those markets are very saturated. Um, but, you know, there are pockets, you know. So if someone brings us a, a property, then, you know, we'll, we'll do the, the, the first look over to see, excuse me, what the market is for that, for that. I mean, we're looking at a one and three and five mile radius. That's how specific we get. That's how granular we get when we evaluate a property. And so, you know, if you tell me, for instance, you know, you're from Austin, that Austin as a whole has a lot of self-storage. Does that mean that there's not an area or two within Austin that could, you know, afford that more supply in that market? Could be, you know, we won't know until we identify that specific location. So when we're generally looking, we're looking for the flyover states. We're looking throughout the Midwest because we feel that the, the saturation is generally a lot lower. I mean, the highest saturation that we've gone into is four. And when you know the market saturation level is seven, we look at if our, you know, if our current rate of supply is four square feet of lockers per capita, then we feel that that's a very good market. The lowest we've done is like 1.6 um, with a half a million people within three miles. I mean, it was just like the for us, that was like a home run. Um, so when we look at, you know, half a million people within three miles and 66% of them are renters and the medium demographics is 40,000, $45,000 per household, you know, to us, that's a, that's a great market. Okay. Awesome. And, I, and I'm assuming that's allowed you to live the lifestyle you want to live with you and your family. Well, we've, we've been blessed that, uh, you know, I think partly owning my own company and, um, you know, there's certainly been some tough times. I mean, make no bones about it. Like when the day that I woke up in the market, I heard that, you know, these major banks went under and, you know, the first thought was in my mind, I was like, what is it? And I just moved, we just built a, a home. We, um, you know, had just moved in and I'm like thinking like, what do I have to do with my business in order to survive this? you know, what, how much is this going to impact us? And I didn't realize it was going to be for the next four years until we really came out of that. Um, you know, those are, they're very challenging times. And so I've been very blessed to have a, a supportive wife and family. And so that, you know, we can have the flexibility to pivot and, and adjust our business accordingly. And so, you know, I, I'm preparing for another recession right now. I, I, I truly believe that we're heading towards a recession and um, you know, 
a lot of people may disagree with me. You know, I hope I'm wrong. Um, but if we, if I am right, then I think we're prepared and I'm, I'm, you know, those are the things that I'm doing is I'm looking to say, okay, how can we best prepare our company for these things? Okay, great. All right, Scott. So let's jump into the lightning round now before I let you jump off. All right. So, um, Sounds good. What, what book or books have greatly influenced your life? Well, right now I'm, 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 I think in the fall, I embarked on a two-year journey um, through the, an organization called the Transformation Center, where we meet quarterly, and we have to do an, an incredible amount of reading for that. Um, and it's it's to develop leadership, it's to develop um, our personal skills so that we can be more effective leaders within the organizations that we're involved with. Um, I really enjoyed Henry Nouwen's various books that he has written. Um, another one is a book called The Road Back to You by Ian Morgan Crone. No relationship, so I don't get any royalties from that, but it's K-R-O-H-N, totally different spelling. Um, but that's also been a very effective book. But I also really enjoy Henry Nouwen's because they're, they're very simple, concise. Um, he's just an incredible author. And how has a failure or perceived failure actually allowed you a greater success later? Well, that, that's a great question. You know, I, I think anytime we all experience failure, right? I mean, right. It, it, there's not too many people in life that go through life without a single failure. Um, and I think that it's in the failure that we are caused to reevaluate, reflect, and assess. Um, I, I was just at a, um, my mentor did a grand opening of a, he, he's now a, a president of a university called High Point University in North Carolina, where he also owns other companies like Lazy Boy and Great Harvest Bread and so on and so forth. But they opened up a $170 million um, conference center and arena this past weekend. And I was fortunate enough to be invited to attend it. And they had John Maxwell uh, speaking and he was talking about success and, and how to be successful. And this comment was to test everything, test, 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 and then embrace the failure, learn to exceed, excel in the failure but more importantly, to learn from that failure. So you, you want to get, as you're testing and as you're failing, you want to get more near misses and you want to get better at failing that you're more effective at failing so that you can assess it and, and create it. And then you, you, it creates a cycle of, of uh, success. This, you know, the cylinder of um, growth because you're, you're testing, you're failing, you're improving, you're reassessing and you're, you're putting it back in, out in the marketplace. And so I, I think that without failure, you, you, you get a false sense of, of um, you know, arrogance in the sense that you don't, you know, you're not, you're not trying to improve. And we've certainly seen that in all the major industries. Look at the auto industry for a long time. It was like they didn't really have any competition because they were, there was a new product and they didn't really have to. There was a limited amount of competition, but when more competition came into the marketplace, they had to really reassess what they were doing and the quality of their vehicles, how they were doing things, mm, um, their yeah. production lines, all those sorts of things in order to adapt and grow. Okay, awesome. Good stuff. 
Okay, and Scott, if you could have an ad, uh, well, not an advertisement, if you can have a billboard anywhere with anything on it, what would it say? Wow. Uh, <laughs> I think that, it, you know, I would want to put, um, you know, the most, it's hard to summarize this in a, in a, in a, in a phrase or a brief, you know, message that a billboard has because a billboard only gives you like 10 seconds of viewing, right? Maybe if you're lucky mm -hmm. 10 seconds. Yeah. But the idea of transformation, the idea of growth and, um, in how that impacts people that you're involved with. And I think that's the greatest gift we have is relationships. And so we, I want to make sure that we're doing everything can to improve those relationships. Definitely. Definitely. Okay. And what, what would you say is, um, what new belief or behavior or habit has most improved your life in the last three or four years? Well, part, part of this process of transformation is that we've had periods of, of uh, solitude and um, silence. And so over the past, I'd say, I'll, I'll take it further, the past 10 years, I begin with my wife every morning. We go down to the beach, Lake Michigan, and we begin by paddleboarding and walking the dog. And it's, you know, today it was pitch black and we're, you know, out on the water and, you know, it's, it's a time to reset. It's a time for that silence, that solitude that, you know, allow your mind to clear, uh, to turn off all the noise and the distraction. I think we get too much noise and distraction in our lives with our phones and, and other stimuli and, and things that are all going on. So for us to unplug, step away and, and have those times to clear your mind are, are very critical. So I, I really rely upon and enjoy beginning our days, you know, down at the beach even in the winter. Yeah, the, the beach is definitely meditative, I think. So yeah, definitely, it definitely sounds good. Um, and uh, you've spoken a lot about growth and transformation. Um, in the last five years, what, what do you think you've been, what have you become better at saying no to? Well, I think in order to say no, you have to be better at evaluating things. And so I think I've become better at evaluating um, the, the situation so that I, I don't necessarily have to say no, I can just pull away. Um, you know, so I can, I can identify things that we want to move towards or move away from. And so I think I've become better at assessing that level and uh, understanding what the situation is going on. And um, perhaps, you know, all the factors that are involved in that, that endeavor. So, you know, that I think I've gotten better at assessing those things. All right. Awesome. And one more for you. This one, you'll probably need to dig the deepest. So what important truth do very few people agree with you on? That's that's an incredibly hard question, um, because the, the reason why I say that is a lot of people I don't think want to engage in a full conversation or discussion. So I'm going to say, 
you know, I'm going to, I like to have a conversation to refine, to focus, to develop, understand a concept or an idea. And I think right now in our, in our culture, we're, that is viewed as conflict Hmm. and we're, our, our society has become conflict resistant unless we can hide behind a screen. And then, then we'll engage in conflict all day long, but it's a false conflict yes. because if you're not brave enough to save it, say it to someone face to face, then you shouldn't be saying it. I mean, I just experienced this this other day. We were talking about um, how bad the weather was down on the lakefront and how our, some of the sailboats were getting blown over. And, and I, I made a comment just that it was windy and that turned into someone attacking somebody else on, on social media. And I was like, that's not the purpose of social media. If you have a problem, go talk to the person in person rather than, you know, hiding behind a screen, you know, where you think is, you know, 10, 15, 20 miles away from the person not having to engage in that. So if I would like, I enjoy having a conversation about different topics so that I can better understand someone else's perspective and talk through them. And a lot of people view that as, as conflict, but I view it as understanding. I view it as dialogue, engaging. And, you know, in the past, that was what our politicians would do. They would have discussions, but then they would go out and have dinner together, right? They would have heated arguments and then they go have dinner together. And that doesn't happen anymore. And I think that we've lost that perspective in our cultures, how to engage in a conversation and still enjoy the person. Yeah, definitely. So true. Now it's either you agree with me or you're evil. So yes, I mean, it's very unfortunate. All right. Well, awesome. Awesome. So yeah, so great having you on, Scott. I really appreciate you coming on. This was very engaging. Um, so before we hop off, if someone wants to get in touch with you, what, what's the best way to, for them to go about doing that? Well, Donald, what I'd like to offer your listeners is if they reference your show and they email us at info at CODA, C-O-D-A, M-G as in managementgroup.com, and we will email them a feasibility study, you know, or a study that we did for one of our projects so they can understand why we chose to to invest in that marketplace, but understanding the demographics. And it's 175 pages typically, and it talks about the overall market and, and, the, and why self-storage is good and, and what it's serving and the purpose and all the demographics behind it. So it's just not about our property, it's about the market in general. And we will email your listeners that if they email us at info at codamg.com and reference this show. And um, it's a free gift that we'd give your your listeners. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. We really appreciate that. My pleasure. All right, Scott. So again, thank you so much. And um, please, when you're down in Austin, please um, reach out. I'd love to have you come and talk to our meetup down here as well. So that'd be great. My pleasure. All right, Scott. So again, thanks for coming on. You have a you have a nice day and I'll be talking to you soon. Sounds good. Thank you very much, Donald. All right. Take care, Scott. Bye. There you have it, guys. Another episode of Dealmaker Diaries in the books. If you enjoy and or find value in what we're doing, please do leave us a nice review. It goes a long way in keeping the show moving in the right direction. For you investors, if you're looking for places to put your hard-earned capital to work, 
head on over to our website, g1cgrp.com and sign up for our investor list to be informed of the different projects we're raising capital for that will provide you with the cash flow your investments so much deserves.